0: Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly. With the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com.
1: Diffusion, the the international science radio show.
0: We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad,
2: the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths.
0: Toxicology, Astro-Seismology, Magnetism, the Dark Side,
2: Genetically Engineered Potatoes,
1: Planetoid,
0: Planetoid,
1: I love that word.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolf. On this edition, the life and death of stars. But first, here's the news cry stoppers and why is seaweed brown the australian museum eureka prizes reward excellence in the fields of research and innovation leadership science communication and journalism and school science the University of Sydney Sleek Geeks Science Eureka Prize for School Students is awarded for a short film that communicates a scientific concept in an accessible and engaging way. The Sleek Geeks themselves are science communicators par excellence, Dr. Karl Kruszynicki and Adam Spencer. The prize recognises excellence in communicating scientific ideas painlessly or, as the Sleek Geeks like to say, help people to learn something without even noticing. In the primary school category, first place was won by Georgia Suyave Murphy and Ella Woods, fifth graders from St. Margaret's Anglican Girls School in Brisbane. Their entry, Crystoppers, explains the science behind the infamous unpleasant effect that onions have on our eyes. The 10-year-olds took on the roles of detectives to solve the mystery of how onions make people cry, as well as some ways to avoid the tears. Here's Georgia Suyave Murphy and Ella Woods.
1: Man, please try and stay calm. We've dealt with situations like this before. Just point us out the culprit. It was the onion! Gigi, we can that this guy has form and is quite a traveller. Yes Ella, we have reports of him all around the world. This guy has a shocking record and is always leaving his victims in tears. Let's see why this happens and how we can stop it. Let's look at the evidence. The onion starts in the soil. It comes from a family of genus groups called alia. It absorbs sulphur from the soil making a volatile and organic molecule called amino acid sulfoxide. Before an onion is cut, the enzymes are kept separate. But when an onion is cut, the contents are released and are now free to mix. enzyme alanase breaks down amino acid sulfoxides into a sulfenic acid called propenysulfenic acid. A second enzyme, called LFS or lacrimatory factor synthase, breaks down and interacts with the propenisulfenic acid and produces synpropanthyl S oxide. At room temperature, this evaporates and forms a gas which wafts towards our eyes. Once the gas reaches our eyes, it stimulates the neurons to create the familiar burning feeling. The brain sends a message to the eyes to wash the irritant away with tears. Just imagine this balloon represents the onion cell. And all of its contents inside. If someone cuts it with a knife, all of its contents goes into the air. The gas wafts towards your eyes like this. The lacrimal glands produce tears to wash away the irritant. Oh, I can really feel it. So now we you know how you did it, Onion. Your crying days are over. Let's make sure onion never does it again. But how? We can put the onion in a fridge. At a lower temperature, less of the irritant will be released. By putting onion in boiling water, it will inactivate the enzymes. Cutting the onion under running water will stop the gas from escaping. Colin Eady is a New Zealand scientist who is working on genetically modified, tearless onions. But these are a long way from the shelves. But until then, the only safe way is to wear... Goggles. It's no longer the crying game. That's right, Gigi, it's the frying game. Another case solved by Crystoppers.
0: Second prize in the primary section of the Sleek Geek Science Eureka Prize went to sixth grade student William Martin. From Trinity Grammar Junior School in Sydney, who created Why is Seaweed Brown? An explanation of photosynthesis including experiments to show how low underwater light explains seaweeds dark colour. Here's William Martin.
3: Have you ever
4: wondered why seaweed is brown and not green like land claims? Something is regarded as a living thing if it reproduces excretes waste, takes in food and nutrients, responds to changes in the environment, grows, and moves on its own. All living things require food or nutrients to survive. But where do plants get their nutrients from? Photosynthesis is the process where plants absorb light energy on their chlorophyll, the green part, and convert this energy to food that can later be converted into usable energy. I've set up a fair test to show that plants need light to grow. These corn seeds are grown with light and these corn seeds are grown without light. You can clearly see that the corn grown with light is much healthier and greener than the corn grown without light. Light doesn't penetrate very well through water. The reading I get from my light meter from the torch through the water is only 300 lux. However, the reading I get from the torch directly to the light meter is over 25,000 lux. This all shows that light doesn't travel very well through water. Seaweed has to cope with these limited light conditions. So how will plants or seaweed get enough light energy to make their own food? It is a simple science fact that light colours absorb far less light than dark colours. Seaweed appears brown because it has an extra brown or darker pigment which uses to help absorb as much light as possible from its environment of limited light. But where is this chlorophyll I hear you ask? Watch as my magical boiling water does the reveal. Earlier? Well, there it is, washed off in my magical water. So, the answer to my original question? Seaweed is brown so it can absorb as much light as possible to make food and keep alive.
0: I'll embed both films on the diffusionradio.com page for this episode. Congratulations to all the winners! Diffusion Science Radio Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com Professor Michael Burton is from the School of Physics at the University of New South Wales He's an astronomer who studies molecular clouds and star formation using the MOPRA telescope near Coonabarabran I began by asking him What is the life cycle of stars?
3: All the gas and the stars in our galaxy, they they go through a life cycle. The stars aren't there for perpetuity. Stars are born, stars go up, and stars die. And there's a life cycle, a galactic ecosystem in play. Essentially, what happens from giant clouds of gas and dust, they collapse under the weight of their own gravity. In the centre of these clouds, a star is formed. A star is basically born from the the gravitational collapse and then the nuclear powerhouse, the nuclear engine, starts. And that's what a star is. A star is essentially burning nuclear fuel in its centre, and it can burn for billions of years. Stars also produce the the chemical elements. All the elements we're made of, apart from the hydrogen and the helium, they're actually made inside stars. And then these materials get returned back into the vast emptiness of interstellar space. Essentially, the stars blow off in winds much of their material, some of them explode as supernovae, and they return this material back to the great voids of interstellar space. And this then accumulates once more. These, these accumulate in great clouds again, and these collapse. And so there's this continuous cycle of life and death in our galaxy. Our galaxy is evolving. As it's doing so, it's enriching the elements. And the byproduct of that is the formation of stars and planets, and indeed we ourselves are essentially just one part of that. The formation of planets like the Earth we live on is just a byproduct of this cycle of gas and dust uh, in our galaxy.
0: So we're just byproducts of the formation of stars and their nuclear fusion.
3: Yes, if you look at it that way, we are literally stardust. That's a that very evocative expression. But we are the debris which was created inside the nuclear furnaces of stars and returned into interstellar space. And then some of it was just left over when a star formed and became a planet. And ultimately evolution happened and, and yeah, life at least on one particular planet in the, in the universe happened on our Earth. But that's exactly right
0: and can you watch and see all the different parts of the life cycle of the stars?
3: Well that's a very interesting question. So of course we can see the stars themselves shining brightly out there and over the last few years the formation of stars has been a hot topic of of, of study. But what we're trying to do right now, and this comes back to the very research we're doing with the Moppa telescope, we're trying to f- look at the formation of these clouds of gas themselves. So when the material is expelled from stars into interstellar space, it has to somehow collect together, and it goes through a process of, sort of, of diffuse clouds to atomic clouds to molecular clouds, And that's a process which really hasn't been seen. It's a process that you can't see very easily. It takes great big surveys charting the, well, the gas and dust is across the sky. We have to see it in its different forms. There's atomic gas, there's molecular gas, there's clouds of dust itself. And so that's what we're doing at the moment. We're trying to actually see the process of the formation of clouds from which the stars then form. Once the stars start to form, they start to show up in infrared light, an optical light, and that's what we see in the sky when we look up in the day, in, in the night time, but, but the formation of clouds, that's invisible. That takes place only in the radio part of the spectrum and it needs uh, telescopes like the Mopper telescope in order to see that and understand uh, what's going on.
0: So as well as looking at the birth of stars, are most of the stars we see in all different parts of the life cycle or are they mainly clustering around one part of their life?
3: Well indeed, we see stars right across the stage of the life cycle. It's a rather interesting life cycle in, in the sense that the most massive, which are the most luminous stars, the ones that we can see furthest, actually don't last for very long. The most massive stars in the galaxy only last a few million years. Whereas a star like the Sun, which is a kind of middle-sized star, that's going to burn for about 10 billion years. But in fact, the the smallest stars, the least massive, the ones we call the red dwarfs, they're going to outlive, essentially, the universe itself, outlive the galaxy. They're going to last for tens of billions of years before they run, run out of energy. Of course, they don't burn their energy very quickly, whereas the massive stars, they sort of Uh, live fast, die young, they're the ones we see right across the galaxy. And they're the ones which actually have the most effect on driving this galactic cycle of evolution because they have so much energy, so much winds, that they essentially drive the future uh, future evolution of our own galaxy.
0: Not all of the stars are born out of hydrogen and helium. Some of them sort of start from... More advanced elements, is that right?
3: No, essentially stars are born out of hydrogen um, and helium, and they do have trace elements inside them, all the heavier elements which are produced inside the stars, the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen. But in fact, interstellar space, it's dominated by the hydrogen. Hydrogen is about 90% of the of the particles out there are hydrogen, either in terms of atomic gas or molecular gas, which is where two hydrogens come together to form a hydrogen molecule. That's the dominant form. But it also turns out that it's very hard to actually see that hydrogen, particularly the hydrogen molecules. It turns out that the hydrogen molecule, the separation of the individual energy levels in it, is actually quite quite, quite large. It's actually um, much greater than the typical energy of interstellar space. The clouds are so cold, they're typically 5 or maybe 10 degrees Kelvin, that the energy levels of the hydrogen molecule aren't seen, aren't populated. So we have to look for these molecules to t- trace species. and In fact, we don't look at hydrogen molecules, we look at carbon monoxide, CO. That's the second most abundant molecule in space, and that, but that's the one we can see. The reason we can see it is that its energy levels are actually uh, very close together, so that even in the really cold 10 degree Kelvin of interstellar space, the carbon monoxide molecule is excited And in particular, there's a line that comes out at 2.6 millimetres. You can just about feel it, a quarter of a centimetre. And that's the one that we measure with the Moppa telescope. And we're now mapping the distribution of the carbon monoxide molecule right right across the southern galactic plane.
0: And how far into its life cycle is our Sun?
3: Our Sun is probably about halfway. It's uh, 5 billion years old. It's got about 5 billion years to go. So it's right in, right in middle age at the moment. It's a perfectly stable star, which of course it has to be. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the fact that the Sun's evolution is very steady. But yeah, we've got a long time to go before we have to worry about uh, moving to the next uh, solar system to escape the, escape the death of the Sun.
0: So what happens when stars start to reach the end of their life?
3: So a star starts to reach of its life when it starts to run out of hydrogen in its nucleus. Essentially, hydrogen is being turned to helium through the process of nuclear fusion uh, in the core of the star. And you've got to be at several millions of degrees, maybe a few 10 to 20 million degrees for this to occur. As that hydrogen fuel starts to run out, um, the star actually starts to collapse under its own gravity because it doesn't have the pressure in the center to hold it up. And you start to get a kind of runaway effect where the helium then starts to fuse to carbon and you can start going up the, 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 the periodic table. And that's what's going to happen to the sun in about 5 billion years' time. The sun's actually not massive enough to go much beyond burning helium, but when it starts doing that, for various complicated reasons, it's also going to sort of puff up and expand its outer envelope and in fact blow that envelope off. That's what we call a red giant star. And essentially, it'll mark the, the end of the sun, certainly the end of the solar system, because the, the, the sun's outer atmosphere will extend somewhere out close to the, to the distance that the Earth is around the sun. But say that's about 5 billion years off, so nothing to worry about uh, right away.
0: And if the sun was more massive... It wouldn't become a red giant. What would happen?
3: Well, indeed, the more massive the sun is, the quicker it goes through its evolution. And the most massive stars, ones which weigh maybe 10 times as much as the sun or more, they actually kind of undergo an uncontrolled nuclear burning right at the end of the evolution. And they can get so hot in the centre they can go to hundreds of millions of degrees, but eventually they run out of energy completely and they just collapse in on themselves and during that collapse there's a kind of bounce when the material falls in the centre and it explodes out again, and that's what we call a supernova. So a supernova is basically the death of the most massive stars and results in a titanic explosion which sheds the outer envelope of the star and throws that back out into space, and in fact that drives what's called a shockwave, an interstellar shockwave, and that runs out into space at thousands of kilometres a second that's carrying the uh, elements, some of the elements, made inside the cores of stars, star, so the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen. It also sweeps up the gas of interstellar space. And after a few thousand years, you've got this expanding shell of gas. Most of it has actually been swept up from the interstellar medium, but it's carrying the material from inside the star, the enriched material, and ultimately that's what's going to form the new clouds, and the material from the star, that's what's going to form the seeds of dust, which ultimately might lead to future planets, for instance. And indeed, our own Earth came about through this process some five billion years ago, a byproduct of the formation of our own solar system itself.
0: And the remnants of the supernovas, do some of them keep collapsing?
3: Yes, yeah, so the very centre of the supernova, it can indeed keep collapsing. It sometimes will stop at what's called a neutron star when the core of the star compresses to a few kilometres across and they've got a density of, of, a, of a single neutron. But it's possible if the mass is too great that even the, what's called the neutron degeneracy pressure, that can't continue to hold the star up and it will literally collapse in itself. And that's what we get to call a black hole. A black hole is when the gravitational force is so great that nothing can hold it up, not even light can get out. And so essentially we get this, this, this we call it a black hole because simply we can't see it, you can't see inside it. Light can't get out, but uh, material can fall inside it.
0: Can we detect black holes?
3: Uh, yes, we can. Not directly, but indirectly, because, of course, you can feel the gravitational the gravitational um, pull. Actually, it is possible, in fact, there are some interesting experiments going on at the moment, to look for what's called the shadow of the black hole. So, for instance, the black hole in the centre of our galaxy, and we think there is one, we think there's one weighing about three or four million times the mass of our Sun, that will basically have a shadow. A shadow in front, if it goes in front of a cloud of gas, it will have a shadow in front of it because it's black. That shadow will have a a very small angular diameter, a few microseconds of arc, a very, very tiny amount. But in principle, that shadow can be seen. And in fact, some astronomers are now designing experiments to look for that shadow, to actually directly see the shadow of a black hole on the gas behind it. That's a very exciting experiment. hasn't been done yet, but it's certainly one of the things that people are trying to do these days.
0: What about neutron stars? Can we observe them?
3: Ah, yes. Neutron stars can be relatively readily observed. We see them as what are called pulsars. So the neutron stars collapse to something about the size of a few kilometres across, and it's actually spinning incredibly rapidly. Uh, and there's beams of radiation which are given out to the spinning process. And it's a bit like a lighthouse in the sky. And if that uh, lighthouse beam comes a- passes across the direction of the Earth, we will see a pulse. And so we see these pulsing stars. They can be pulsing at many times a second or just once or twice a second. We call them pulsars. But what they really are are spinning neutron stars, the remnants of a supernova explosion long, long ago. So one of the things that happens inside these uh, clouds of molecular gas, the very uh, clouds which we uh, were mapping with Mopra, these clouds can be the most massive single objects in our galaxy. They can weigh several hundred thousand times the mass of our Sun. They're extended across several parsecs in space, many light years in space, and stars form inside them. Stars form from the collapse uh, of this material and in fact, what you, what you do in a molecular cloud, you get a star cluster. So you generally you get tens if not hundreds of stars which form from the collapse of this material. And so basically the, the molecular cloud that we're, we're measuring, we're look, mapping, is going to give rise to a new young cluster of stars probably in the next uh, few million years. Essentially, once a molecular cloud is formed, star formation is relatively rapid, at least on an astronomical sense, and, and a star cluster will form fairly soon afterwards, and that's the next stage. In this cycle of life and death uh, in the universe. Michael Burton,
0: thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian.
0: That was Professor Michael Burton from the University of New South Wales talking about the life and death of stars. You can support his work by going to tiny.cc slash mopra,
5: The sun is a miasma of incandescent plasma The sun's not simply made out of gas, no, no, no The sun is a quagma It's not made of fire, forget was told by myself
0: That was Why Does the Sun Really Shine by They Might Be Giants from the Here Comes Science CD and DVD set. Find out more at tmbg.com.
2: You're still a citizen with the power to vote. Living in a scientific age, we need citizens who know enough about science to make intelligent decisions about what they do. We've used science to, to prolong life, to increase security and happiness but it can also be used for destruction. Are we going to use it constructively to promote peace and and give the world freedom from want? It'll be up to you, and you too.
0: And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at DiffusionRadio.com and please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network including 2 Triple H in hornsby Keringai, 2 NVR in Nambucca Valley, 2 XXX in Canberra and 3 MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com, that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then explore more than 700 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are indexed by keywords so you can easily find the subjects you'd like to focus on. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
2: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man, knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits